Thanks for listening in to the Calvary Podcast, coming to you from Miami, Florida. We're so glad you've joined us. We hope today's message will encourage you and remind you that God is with you and He's for you. Here's today's message. Uh, I want to... um preach this morning, for teach this morning from Mark chapter 11. I'm not going to read the scripture, but it's up or will be up shortly on the screen. And I've asked the uh, tech people to just keep the scripture moving through as I move through the passage. Uh, if you've got your Bible, please follow along with me. And this is a story here. It begins in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 12, with Jesus being hungry. How many were hungry this morning when they got up? And he was looking for breakfast. We went to the restaurant in the hotel this morning and they said, well, we're not, we don't serve breakfast this morning. So Jesus was in, was in, I'm not saying he was in an ugly, but he was looking for breakfast. And uh, on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree in the distance and he went to inspect it, the scripture says, to see if he could find anything on it but there was no fruit on it because as the gospel tells us, it wasn't the season for figs. Now here, I've got one revelation for you to take home. This is profound. Jesus was not stupid. (laughs) Uh, He knew perfectly well that at that time of year, the time of Passover, March or April, that the fig tree would be full of leaves, but there wouldn't be any fruit on it. And it wouldn't be another couple months until the ripe figs were ready for eating. So what am I saying? Jesus did not go to the tree to get his breakfast. Jesus went to the tree to make a point. And that suggests to us that something more than fig trees are involved in this passage. Jesus did just what the prophets did. On many, many occasions, he used common situations and objects from everyday life to make a prophetic statement. So what was it? Well, I read through quickly several scriptures in the Old Testament prophets. The fig tree referred to Israel's position with God. Israel was frequently referred to as a fig tree that was supposed to bear fruit for God. And... uh, When the prophet spoke about it, it was usually in the context of judgment. The fig tree did not bear fruit and was coming out of the judgment of God. Jeremiah chapter 8, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. What I gave them has passed away from them. Judgment of God. Jeremiah 29. Behold, I'm sending in them sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. Hosea chapter 2 and 12. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Hosea chapter 9. Like the fruit on the fig in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal and they became detestable to the thing they loved. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit on their fig tree. 
Joel chapter 1, a nation has come against my land. It has splintered my fig tree. And finally, Micah chapter 7, I woe to me, I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig that my soul desires because the godly has perished from the earth. You get the picture, right? Do you get the picture? In all these verses, the fig tree is used to refer to Israel. It was supposed to bear fruit, but either it didn't bear fruit and withered or the fruit was rotten. And when God judges Israel, the fig tree is cursed. That's the Old Testament background. And so it would be astonishing if Jesus could speak of fig trees. If Jesus could go up to a fig tree, say it's got no fruit, curse it, and later it's withered. If Jesus could do all of that, just because he was mad that he was hungry, that's not why he did it. He made a prophetic statement. He's speaking about the imminent judgment of God on Israel. And that becomes even clearer when we look at the very next thing that Jesus did because Jesus encounters the fig tree on the Mount of Olives on his way into Jerusalem. And as the passage continues, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and what does he do? What does he, do? he takes his whip, he overturns the money changers' tables, he cleanses the temple, and he pronounces the judgment of God on the rotten religious system. And Matthew tells us in his account of the story that on the day that the blind, on that day that Jesus was in the temple cleansing it, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Do you know Old Testament law excluded the blind and the lame from the temple? What happened? Jesus shut the system down. In that moment, he shut the whole religious system down and the blind and lame came flooding in because, because the prophet Isaiah says, on the day the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the lame man shall leap like a deer. The Messiah is coming to his temple. He's, he is wrecking. the Jesus came to destroy the power of religion. And so then... After Jesus has cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple, he returns to the fig tree, verses 20 and 21, and he finds it withered and his curse is fulfilled. The fig tree right there on the Mount of Olives, it looked beautiful from a distance, like so many of the beautiful palm trees around here, but when you came closer, it was rotten. It is an exact picture of the temple. The temple, the second temple, the temple that Herod built, was one of the wonders of the world in the Roman Empire. It looked incredible, even, even more impressive than the Biltmore. Uh, it looked incredible. Uh, with all of its religious activities, it looked impressive from the outside, but when you got closer, it was full of corruption and barrenness. And the judgment that the prophets said would come is now beginning. Now, the next thing, verse 23, that Jesus said, sounds rather strange. We've got through the fig tree, and I hope you understand a little bit more about what that means than you did when you 
came into the building this morning. The next thing is even stranger. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus, what the heck are you talking about? Well, see, here's the thing. You have to understand the New Testament in the context of the Old Testament. I've already proven that by all the passages about the fig tree, right? In the book of Revelation, and by the way, the exciting news of the day is that the big commentary that I co-authored on the book of Revelation has been translated into Spanish. Apocalipsis. Un commentario más breve. A shorter commentary. That's true. It is not más breve because it's 600 pages. <laughs> but in the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses. And in those 404 verses, there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That's 1.25 approximately for those of you that pass math. 1.25 for every verse, allusions. And the problem that people make in reading Revelation is they interpret it by the latest news reports on Fox News coming out of the Middle East. Instead of interpreting it by the 500 allusions to the Old Testament, which actually make it quite easy to understand. And so the same thing is happening right here. That just like with the fig tree, if you don't understand the Old Testament background, you won't get the meaning of what's happening here. But this is really important because Jesus is thinking of Zechariah. Do you ever wonder why Nicodemus, when, you know, Jesus says, if a man is not born again by water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, who's a great teacher of, of the Jews, comes along and he says, what are you talking about? And Jesus said, Are you a teacher of Israel and you understand what I'm talking about? Why is that? Because Ezekiel prophesied about the day that the Messiah would come and baptize with water and the Spirit and you'd be born again. And Nicodemus was so tied up in all of his religious rules that he forgot what Ezekiel had prophesied. It should have been ABC to him, but he didn't get it. It's, a, it's incredible how religion will destroy your ability to understand anything about the kingdom of God. Well, anyway, so Jesus here is thinking of Zechariah chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, where he's talking about the end times. He's talking about God's judgment on Israel. He's talking about how when the Messiah comes, uh, there'll be a restoration to God. And he finally goes on in chapter 14. This is Zechariah I'm talking about. And he talks about the ultimate establishment of the kingdom of God. And he says, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the reference comes in Revel three chapters, 16, 19, and 20 of, of the book of Revelation again. And so then God on that day will destroy his enemies. And this he's talking about the day of the Lord's return. And when the Lord comes, something remarkable is going to happen, Zechariah tells us in chapter 14. He says, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the feet of the Messiah, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that, now listen to this, one half of the, the mountain will move. 
One half of the mountain will move to the north, the other to the south. Then the Lord my God will come and the Lord will be king over all the earth. So at the heart of this vision is a picture of God's messenger standing on the Mount of Olives which is going to be split in two all the way from the Mediterranean. If you've been to Israel, we went there in our honeymoon. To the Dead Sea, its remnants will be thrown into either one sea or the other and living water will flow over the land. Now, what we learn from reading Mark chapter 11 and going right back to the very beginning, that everything in this story, except for Jesus in the temple, is happening where? on the Mount of Olives. That's where the fig tree was. That's where Jesus says, this mountain will move. He knows that's what Zechariah has said. When the Messiah comes, the mountain will move. Jesus is prophesying, it's beginning to be fulfilled this day. And all biblical prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it's fulfilled in two phases. The first is the entrance of the kingdom of heaven into this earth, and the second is the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven when the Lord returns. And we live in the in-between of the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. That's why the kingdom of God comes with power and we see signs and wonders and miracles and God doing all sorts of wonderful things. But we also still live in the middle of a fallen world where sometimes our prayers aren't answered and we go through difficulty and tough times and opposition and people are martyred and more people are being martyred for the gospel today than have ever been martyred in all the history of the church from zero to now. So we're living in this in-between. But in the in-between, we know that the victory is ours. And so here it is, uh, the be taken up and thrown into the sea. That's what uh, Jesus is saying. Now it's obvious, I, I hope to you, or it's becoming obvious, you can go back and listen to this again if you want to, or read the scripture over. Um, pastor has, has my notes. I'm happy for them to be distributed if it's a help to you. Jesus is not suggesting that we should all go out and find the nearest hill. You'd have to go wild in Miami. I've noticed there's not too many mountains around here. He's not saying go out and find the nearest hill and try to get it to move an inch. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, in the Old Testament, mountains are often identified with pagan nations, which are obstacles to the purposes of God. And so in Zechariah's prophecy, the Mount of Olives represents something standing against the purposes of God and the destruction of the mountain in the last days will usher in the return of the Lord and the victory of his people. Now, why am I saying all this? Well, these verses have been badly, badly misinterpreted, particularly in what we call the faith and prosperity movement. To the extent, and even a lot of people that have never necessarily encountered that have also misinterpreted this. They think the Bible teaches that if we only exercise enough faith, if we only get, it, get convinced in our mind that something is going to happen, that we can make it happen, that we can obligate God to be our servant and make what we want to happen, happen. In other words, I can move any mountain I want. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. We believe that any obstacle to our happiness, our financial blessing, let me tell you something. This is 
God's not committed to your happiness. Hello, somebody. He's committed to your salvation, but not to your happiness. We saw people in town last night trying to be happy. I don't think it was working that well for them. God's not committed to that. Do you really want a life of surface image? Do you? Oh, gee. Okay, I got to stop because even though pastor gave me five more minutes, he's so gracious. We think that we misinterpret it that way. A lady as recently as last Sunday in the church I was preaching and came up to me at the end of the service and said, if only I pray and fast hard enough, then will God give me what I want? And I said, no. I said, you pray and fast so that God can change your heart and get what he wants. So the mountain Jesus is talking about is not the obstacle to your achieving what you want. The mountain is what's standing in the way of the establishment of the kingdom of God in your life. That's different. Jesus is not teaching about believers exercising faith to get what they want. Jesus is teaching about believers submitting to the kingdom purposes of God and allowing God to use them as instruments for the establishment of his purposes, not mine. Jesus saw every exercise of faith as a battle against an obstacle that stands in the way of what God wants. We live in the in-between. It's like the Second World War. If you learn history, there was a D-Day when the, and, and, and many American and Canadian and other forces paid with their lives in going into France and many lives were lost. But after D-Day, everybody knew the end. Everybody knew and yet it was many more months and many more lives lost before they arrived at V-Day, Victory Day, right? So we live, D-Day's already happened. It's called Calvary. We live in the goodness of D-Day. We know we're going to win. We, we read, I read the last page of the Bible and I know we win. But we live in the great in-between. And people get sick and people die and pastors are martyred and believers and all these things happen and it's complicated, but we press on. I said to a lady after the first service, be like the widow in Luke 18. Her only weapon was persistence, but she kept at it. Jesus said, ask, seek and knock. Keep on asking, seeking and knocking. So Jesus saw every exercise of faith as a battle against an obstacle standing in the way of what God wanted. Those obstacles include death, demonic powers, disease, poverty, hatred, envy, lust, jealousy, strife, dead religion, the hardness of people's hearts, the whole nine yards. And so Jesus taught his disciples to speak to the mountain. We're given a mandate to speak to what opposes God's agenda and remove it or ask God to remove it so that the kingdom can move forward regardless of what that means to my personal dreams or desires. See, how many of you know it's a biblical principle that God gives 
a dream. I think of Abraham, think of David, think of um, Jacob, think of Joseph, think of even the apostle Paul of Elijah. God gives a dream, then he destroys the dream in order to resurrect it after he's dealt with something in the man's life and it comes to the glory of God. So if you're living in the middle of a destroyed dream this morning or what looks like it, invite God into your mess and see how he resurrects it and it turns out better than you thought. <laughs> how many of you have prayed prayers and you look back and say, thank God that you didn't answer that prayer? So, what is the goal of faith? Well, Jesus says the goal of faith is the establishment of the kingdom. And he gives us authority in prayer to move the mountains that stand in the way of the kingdom. We can ask God to remove obstacles which block the achievement of his goals. But what we can't do is expect God to fulfill goals that we have set in independence of his call in our lives. See, some preachers have taught us that faith is directed toward the moving of our own personal mountains. They've taught us wrongly that we can ask God for a blank check for whatever makes us happier, wealthier, whatever. You know, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, get under the spout where the glory comes out, all that kind of stuff. And you know what happens? People get disappointed because God will not be manipulated. He will not be controlled. He'll leave you flat in your face. People get disillusioned with God because of that teaching. But let me tell you something. People get disillusioned because they believed an illusion. Think about it. So you ask the question, well, how am I supposed to handle my personal needs? I have real needs. We pray for a bunch of people this morning already. Their health, their jobs, their family, and so on. Yes, Jesus teaches us to pray for all those things. But where things go wrong is where they become the main thing. See, the main thing is the kingdom. That's the main thing. For the sake of the kingdom, Jesus may call us to lose our health, to lose our wealth. Think of the missionaries, the early missionaries that took their coffins with them when they went to the mission field. The question is, what is our motivation in serving God? And I think God's looking for men and women who will follow him even in the days when, as the prophet Habakkuk describes it, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vine, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. When the kingdom begins to break through, it always comes at a cost. The cost may be seeing God move through you, even when some of your own needs. We had friends, his wife has been with multiple sclerosis for over 40 years. They've seen miracles, including other people healed from multiple sclerosis. And she's never been healed. How does that work? We live in the great in-between. But they keep on serving. We need to be a people who see into the greater rewards of eternity and are willing to pay the price on earth. But folks, make no mistake, God will not fail those whose hearts are committed to his kingdom. He won't. 
The reward is always greater, even if it isn't what you started out looking for. So you can try to move your own mountain without involving God at all. That's positive thinking, or in church it's called prosperity teaching. It starts people out on a high and leaves them in despair, and in the end it destroys real faith. Jesus told the disciples, and I mentioned this the last time I was here, and I talked about the desperate dad who brought his demonized son. And he made that most encouraging statement in scripture, I believe, help my unbelief. How many can identify with that? I sure can. And then the disciples are saying, well, why can we heal? And he says, well, it's because of your little faith. But then he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, nothing is impossible. Well, the mustard seed was the smallest seed. First, he says, your problem is there little faith. Then he says, you only need little faith. But you see, when you really understand what it says in Greek, the word is oligopistian, and it means small. It doesn't mean, you, the first phrase is not your little faith, and that's why you failed. It's faith of poor quality. So what Jesus is saying is, even if you have the tiniest quantity of faith but if your quality of faith is right you will succeed God will meet you what is a, what is a right quality of faith it's a faith that trusts in him not it's not faith in my faith it's faith in my savior see and that's the problem when you teach people that faith is dependent on hard you, how, you believe, how hard you believe, you're teaching them that they're God. They're not God. The power is in the Word of God. The power is in the throne of God. The power is not in me. A faith which casts itself in trust on God, knowing its own weakness, says, Thy kingdom come, and then God begins to move. And it was a little while, I think, after we were here the last time that we were in uh, the state of Michigan in a church that we know very well and love. And um, at the end of the service, I don't know where I was, probably out having coffee and left my wife to pray for people. She does it more effectively than me, so why not? But anyway, um, a young mother that we know came, forth, came forward with her little boy. His name was Blake. And uh, Blake was born with a rare genetic syndrome. And he had been taken to the DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, one of the top children's hospitals in the Midwest. And the, the, the consultants there, the, the specialists, pediatric specialists, had said, we're sorry uh, to the mom and dad, we're sorry, but your son will never walk. And so she brought him forward and asked Elaine to pray. And in that moment, Elaine had a small, very small quantity of faith. In her mind, she didn't think anything was going to happen. But she had a quality of faith. That comes from when she's up most mornings at 6 o'clock praying for an hour or two. That's the quality of faith that learns to cast itself on God. And so she prayed out of compassion without any expectation in her mind that anything would happen well we got in a plane and flew somewhere and she opened up 
uh, her computer, her phone, and a couple days later, there's a video. And little Blake, and what she didn't know, which would have made it even worse, is that the mom had received a promise from God, which other people knew about, but she didn't tell Elaine, that Blake would walk by his fifth birthday. And his fifth birthday was only two days away. She just, well, she didn't say that. <laughs> and we saw this video at his fifth birthday party at his grandparents. Their names, Merle and Norma, they're friends of ours. At their home, we saw it. Little Blake, while they were videotaping the birthday party, he got up and he walked. Wow. <laughs> He's doing so well. She put a she put something on Facebook a few weeks ago. He walked all the way from one end of the supermarket parking lot to the other, got himself covered in mud, and she was the happiest mom on earth because God can do anything. And it doesn't depend on how hard I believe. It depends on how much I cast myself on God. Now, we can understand why Jesus chose to wait until after he taught about the mountain and all that I've unfolded to you. He chose to wait until after all that before he said these words. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. The problem is that preachers get up. They don't preach anything about the fig tree, the moving of the mountain. They don't know the Old Testament background. They don't know about the kingdom of God. They don't know it's not about you getting what you want out of God. All they do is cherry pick this one verse and say, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. And then they wonder why God fails them when the scripture doesn't work. It's because they twisted the scripture and made it into something that it isn't. This is about the kingdom. Not you getting a fancy car. None of us can produce the smallest miracle. I can't move a paperclip, let alone a mountain, by faith. But I tell you what, if I choose to line myself up with the purposes of God by walking with Jesus in the way of the cross, I and you too, we will find ourselves part of the most powerful mountain-moving adventure the world has ever seen. And here's a neat fact. I can give it because I've got eight minutes and 29 seconds left. <laughs> you know, pastor has a, a thing on the platform here and he presses a button and you go down to the... <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Gethsemane also was on the Mount of Olives? See, that was the place that Jesus turned down the power and the glory. He could have had an army of angels but he said, no, I have to go to the cross instead. Did, but did you know, because God always wins in the end, that where Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father to rule over this entire universe, he ascended from the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says one day he'll return right there. That place where he cursed the fig tree. That place where he taught all these things. But at that time, the mountain will shatter. This whole universe will dissolve and the new creation, the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. But until that day, you and I, we're called to be a people who seek first the kingdom.
a people who cast ourselves in trust on God regardless of the cost, regardless of what we feel, regardless of how, what thoughts are rolling around in our head, what doubts and all the rest of it. We just do it in the assurance that Jesus will meet us like he met those doubting disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't even recognize who he was, that somehow on the journey, Jesus will meet us. Whatever battles take place, how many times we fall flat on our face, whatever challenges are there, he will not forsake us. He will not walk out on us. And we will see his kingdom come as the obstacles to its progress are cast into the sea before us. Let me tell you a story it came to me last night. So I was thinking about this message. A few years ago, we were in England in the city of Newcastle upon Tyne in the church of a very good friend of ours. It's a great church in that city called City Church. And the pastors had asked if we would be willing to spend a day just counseling people, uh, giving them ministry, praying for them, whatever the need may be. So we sat in a little room all day. I remember just in between appointments, we turned the light off, <laughs> fell asleep on the couch, got up again. And anyway, um, so we were going down the list of all the people that were coming and the pastors were saying, well, this is this and this is that a situation. And so I was trying to get some background. And we got to this one uh, lady's name and nobody, nobody knew who she was. And everybody looked at each other. Well, I thought you knew. No, I don't know. Well, I said, well, I guess we'll find out. So when the do, when the do moment came, this lady walked and young, young lady walked in the door and uh, she sat down and she began to unfold her story. Now, she was an Algerian French woman. In other words, she was of Arabic background, uh, but born and raised in France as a Muslim. And at some point, she had got saved at a church in Paris. She was, uh, and then at first it was okay, but she fell into the grasp of an unscrupulous preacher who told her that the more that she gave, the more she would be blessed. And if she ever stopped giving, she'd be cursed. And even though she was a senior executive with a multinational corporation that every single person in this room would know of, I said what it was. She was, had a very high salary. She was living in utter poverty because the preacher taken all of her money. And so we explained some of the same principles I've just explained to you today. We prayed for her and Jesus set her free. It was amazing. Matter of fact, she became a member of that church. She never went back. And uh, I, uh, I remember at the very end of the interview, um, after we prayed for her, she took her purse and she pulled her checkbook out of it. And I remember speaking to her in French and saying, I don't want your money. We have come to give to you, not you to us. She burst into tears, never experienced that. And 
But here's the neat thing. I said, do you mind my asking? Nobody here knows who you are. How did you come here? And she said, about two weeks ago, I was in a state of complete uh, despair. I was having suicidal thoughts. There was no way out. I didn't know what to do. And I cried out to God. And she said, I had a vision. And in the vision, God spoke to me and said, I'm sending you two prophets from Canada. And they will tell you what to do. And so the next Sunday, she's wandering around the city and somehow walks in the door of this church. She's never been in it in her life. Sits down. And just at that moment, the pastor is up at the front with a great big screen light behind me. And he puts a picture of Elaine and I up on the screen. And he says, next Sunday, David and Elaine are coming from Canada. And if you would like to talk to them, you just put your name on the list at the back. And so she did. That's how we met her. Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. He is amazing. And so I have one minute and 54 seconds to tell you something that is already obvious to you. That I don't have power because I've healed someone or knocked 100 people down the prayer line. I have power because I know I'm nothing and he's everything. Thank you, Lord. I'm almost at the Iglesia. <laughs> so, wherever you're at in your journey of faith this morning, I hope that what I brought is an encouragement to you. Would you just stand with me now? God, perhaps you're here, maybe you're watching online, maybe an additional seating, and you find yourself very far from, from God. And you know there's things in your life that are not right, and you're saying, this is, this is cool, but... I feel guilt, I feel shame. I know I've done some wrong. I got sin in my life. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. And our sin separates us from God. And so yes, sin has a heavy price, it's called death. The Bible says for the wages or the price of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Sin should kill us. It should have killed all of us. And some of us are on that way. It is killing us mentally, emotionally, physically. It will kill you. Sin will destroy you. Some of us are living in the aftermath of our sin. But today the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. You can have a brand new beginning. You can have forgiveness of sin. You can have your name written in the book of life. And today you can start a relationship with God in heaven with every eye closed. With every head bowed, today if you're in here, you're saying, Alex, I need Jesus. The Bible says that God sent his son. Jesus came and he took my sin, your sin. He carried it on his shoulders and he went up at Calvary and Jesus paid the ultimate price for sin. There at Calvary, he gave up his life for me and for you. The Bible says that G Jesus died a gruesome death there on that cross. He went down to a grave. He was dead for three days and after three days, Jesus Christ, he resurrected. We believe with all of our heart that Jesus is alive today. If you're looking for peace, if you're looking for hope, if you're looking for grace, if you're looking for a new beginning, if you're looking for forgiveness of sins, only Jesus offers it. 
Today, if you're in here and you're saying, Alex, I need Jesus. The Bible says if you believe it in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. With every eye closed, every head bowed, I'm going to count to three. If you say, Alex, I need Jesus. Today, today, I want to give him my life. Today, I want a brand new beginning. I want him to remove sin, guilt, shame. I want to give him all of me. At the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. Would you just raise your hand high enough, long enough for me to see you? I want to know who I'm praying for. And then you can put it right back down. One, two, three. If that's you, you're saying, Alex, I need Jesus. Raise your hand as high as you can. God bless you. 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 I see you. I see you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Amazing. 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 God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Amazing. 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 Awesome. An additional seating. You raise your hands as well. Hands all over the place. You can put them back down. I want you to repeat this prayer with me from the bottom of your heart. I'm making this first prayer easy, but you can talk to God any place, anywhere. He wants to hear from you. In fact, old church, why don't you repeat with me out loud. Say, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity. Today I admit that I'm a sinner and that my sin separates me from you. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, that you died for my sins, and on the third day, you resurrected. Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. From today on, I'm forgiven, I'm saved, and I'm healed. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and a. Come on, can we celebrate every life today making that decision? Come on, there's a party going on in heaven right now. Hands went up all over this place. We want to congratulate you on the best decision of your life. We got a gift for you outside. There's a Connect tent. You're going to see part of our Connect team all around the front patio. They're waving this gift. If you said this prayer today, go up to them and say, hey, I did that prayer with Pastor Alex. They're going to give you this free bag. There's a bunch of gifts in there, but the most important gift, there's a free Bible in there. And we want to make it available to you absolutely free. So make sure you pick it up. And then we also have a coffee cup and some other stuff. A letter from me and Diana to help you with next steps on what to do. We love you. We're here for you. Anybody glad you came to church today? Come on. He's a good God. Hey, don't forget this Wednesday night is men's night. Next week, we continue with James. Why don't we lift up our hands? We're going to leave out of here singing praise one more time as we give them all the praise and all the glory. Father, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, all that, we, that you will do. We give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray that you go before us this week. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.